unless someone else is. No, I thought I was going to. Our first reading is Psalm 98. And you'll find it on page 480. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth, who will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Our second reading from the New Testament is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning at verse 20. Page 936. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all.
Well, it's only two sleeps now until Christmas. Uh, I'm sure you are all excited about uh, what it is that you're getting as your gifts. I'm hoping very much that my Christmas this year is the same as every Christmas for me, which means getting a bunch of books and a bunch of records. Doesn't matter what they are, really, and they'll go on the pile of things that I haven't read since Christmas last year. It's a pretty exciting time. But Christmas, more than just uh, presents, is a time for many of us of real joy. Christmas is a time where we spend uh, extra time, additional time, to what we normally get to do with family, with friends. Uh, we spend time enjoying good food and the other good things that God has given us. Christmas is a time that we look forward to, that we get excited about in all kinds of ways. Uh, it's a time that uh, brings us great happiness, Except, of course, when it doesn't. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes the joy of Christmas can actually, in a strange way, highlight so many of the things that are hurtful in our life. So many of our disappointments, our loneliness, our loss in all kinds of ways. There's this funny way in which, because it's supposed to be a time of great happiness and excitement and family together, that the things that are missing seem all the more poignant. Uh, one of the things that we get at Christmas all the time is uh, Christmas music. There's a whole bunch of Christmas music out there. Most of it sucks, but that's okay. Uh, I want to play for you, though, a song that I think is probably the saddest Christmas song that has ever been written. Uh, maybe. There are some good contenders. But I want to play this song because I want it to uh, be a way for us to, to start to get into that disjunction we feel sometimes at Christmas the way in which we want to be happy and to be enjoying all the happiness and the excitement around us and yet feel like something is missing. Uh, it's a song by uh, a singer-songwriter from America called Sufjan Stevens. Some of you will know him and love him. Um, he is incredibly hipster, and I make no apologies for that. You will hear some banjo. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful song, and a song actually that gives us uh, something of the sense of hope that we're going to come to as we look at that passage from 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. So I want you to uh, listen closely. Uh, he, you know, sings nice and, and quietly, softly, as is appropriate. Uh, I think you'll find for the tune. Um, I'll highlight some of the parts of that song for you. But have a listen uh, and see what it is. It's a song called uh, That Was the Worst Christmas Ever. Here we go. But if you can remember what your worst Christmas might have been. I wonder if there are hurts and disappointments, losses of various kinds that you're feeling really acutely right now, actually, as Christmas approaches again. It's this funny thing, isn't it, that uh, Christmas is supposed to be about family and community in all kinds of ways, and so it's often the relational hurts that come up for us most at Christmas. You see that in the song, actually, that we just heard. There's this first verse about this beautiful kind of fun playing in the snow together, a very Northern Hemisphere image, I know. But then there's a second verse about a bitter and angry father who throws his kids' Christmas gifts in the fire. A situation of just real sadness and sorrow in the midst of what should be real joy. I don't know what hurts, what disappointments, what loneliness or loss you're carrying this Christmas, but you might feel a little bit like uh, the last line you hear in that song. Uh, silent night, holy night, silent night, nothing feels right. Just something's gone wrong. It's a bit of a kitschy, kind of lame line, but it's quite poignant too, isn't it? This is when things are supposed to feel good. <laughs> and yet sometimes they feel exactly the opposite. There's another beautiful line uh, in, near the end of that song, which you might have heard. Uh, he, sings, uh, he sings, In time, the snow will rise. This idea that the, the winter will lift, the coldness, the dark, and the gloom will move. In time, the snow will rise, and he sings then, In time, the Lord will rise. 
like the lifting of the cold, harsh winter to reveal the beauty of spring, the hope for, for this person at least is that resurrection is coming. Then in the midst of the loss, in the midst of the hurt and the disappointment, there's new life around the corner. That's what we see playing out in the passage that we had read for us from 1 Corinthians 15 today. The message from God to us tonight is that the Lord's rising can open a path for us to live through all these kinds of disappointments and sadnesses that come to us in life. Things that happen to us all the time, but things that sometimes are particularly acute at this time of year. Uh, God's telling us tonight that Christmas is the beginning of a story, but just the beginning. The beginning of a new life of a baby who's born to us at Christmas, the new life of a baby born in Bethlehem, but also the beginning of a new life for the whole of humanity. Uh, you might remember someone famous once said that Christmas leads to Easter. We need to have Christa, Christmas and Easter together. That's what this passage is about tonight as well. That the new beginning at Christmas is a new beginning for the whole of humanity as it leads toward resurrection. So we're going to have a look at this passage in three parts. We're going to uh, first of all think about the fact of the resurrection. Well, then we're going to see how Christmas is a new beginning for the whole of humanity and how Christmas brings about the kingdom of God and what that means for us before we finish up by thinking about Christmas and waiting. Let's start by thinking about the fact of resurrection. Uh, apparently some of the Corinthians, uh, some of the Christians in the ancient city of Corinth where this letter was first read uh, were claiming that there was no such thing as resurrection. Now, we've picked up this letter in the second last chapter, but this is the chapter where Paul brings his whole argument together, all the different threads of the last 14 chapters of this long letter. And he's been at pains all the way through to say that what you do with your body matters. In chapter 6, he writes that the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so he says, therefore, glorify God in your body. And then in chapter 15, he tackles directly those who deny the resurrection of the body, who deny that the, the body can be raised from the dead. In verses 3 to 11, he lays out the gospel message culminating in Jesus' victory over death in resurrection. In verses 5 to 11, he lists some of those who were witnesses to this, people who saw the risen Jesus, who touched him, who spoke with him, who ate meals with him. Then in verses 12 to 19, Paul lays out some hypothetical consequences of the view of his opponents, things that would be true if, in fact, the dead are not raised, if the resurrection is merely a myth. Now, Paul concludes that section by saying that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says that this is central to our Christian faith, central to the message of Jesus that Christ really did rise from the dead. He spends some time talking about hypotheticals, he finishes here, and then immediately he gets to the passage that we had read for us tonight. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's worth taking a moment just to make sure that we have this really clear. Uh, Paul is saying two things to us here. He's saying, firstly, that this resurrection of Jesus is central to what Christians believe, and second, that the resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history. Now, without the resurrection of Jesus, the scriptures say, there's no Christianity at all. The whole thing falls apart. Uh, resurrection is a non-negotiable part of the gospel message, of the good news of what God is doing in his creation in the world, each one of us. 
And we'll see why that's so important to the gospel message as we get to our next couple of points. But before we do, we need to recognize that second point that Paul is making here, and the other New Testament writers also make, that Christians throughout the ages have uh, gone uh, to death for. Christians believe in a real, genuine, physical, material, tangible resurrection. The Gospels make this very clear, especially Luke and John. Uh, They tell uh, stories by uh, eyewitnesses of people who met the risen Jesus, uh, who touched him, who spoke with him, who ate meals with him. The risen Jesus eats real food uh, explicitly. He says to prove that he's not a ghost, that he's a real person with a real body. He lets uh, doubting Thomas stick his fingers in his side and the holes in his hands to see that he's not a ghost, that he's a real physical person. Jesus himself and the writers who record these interactions go to great lengths to demonstrate that his resurrected body was real flesh and blood. He wasn't a disembodied ghost. He was a renewed physical human being. This isn't something, it's important to say, that was just made up centuries later after Jesus was around. It's something, in fact, that historians, whether they're uh, Christians or not, that historians are pretty much in agreement that something pretty remarkable happened on that day. Uh, Historian and theologian John Dixon has written lots about this. Uh, He's got this great little book that we have on our bookstall. We keep it on our bookstall uh, pretty much all the time. It's worth checking out, called A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And in one of those chapters, he tackles the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And what he does is summarize what uh, the historians, again, whether they're Christian or not, what they uh, agree on about Jesus' resurrection. He says that there are two things that all historians agree on together. Uh, First, he says, Jesus' tomb was very likely empty shortly after his crucifixion. And secondly, that from the very beginning, significant numbers of men and women claimed to have seen Christ alive from the dead. Whatever you think about resurrection, the whole idea of the dead being raised, you need to know that this is the historical evidence we have before us. Uh, And Dixon makes a very uh, helpful point for us about what do you do with that kind of evidence. Uh, He goes on to say, Now the conclusions that people draw from this data will depend on their underlying philosophical beliefs on what is possible in our world. If I believe that the observable laws of nature define the limits of what is possible in the universe, then I can rationally affirm that no evidence will ever be good enough to overturn the conclusion that dead people stay dead. On the other hand... Uh, if I assume that the laws of nature do not define the limits of what is possible in the universe, because there is a lawgiver behind and above the laws of nature, then I can rationally interpret the historical data as evidence for an actual resurrection, at least in the case of Jesus. You see, the historical evidence we have before us lines up with what Paul says here, but in fact, he says... And it's totally rational, totally reasonable on the basis of the evidence we have, including the Gospels and the New Testament itself, to believe that this is a real thing that happened. Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, not in some post-physical, ghostly, disembodied sense, but raised with a new, solid flesh and blood body. And this is central to what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe. We've got to ask the question then, why does this matter? Why does it matter to the message of the gospel, to what Christians believe, that this was a real, tangible, physical body that Jesus was raised with? And the reason is that it becomes the basis of the new beginning that is the culmination of the story that starts at Christmas. The fact of the Lord Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave is the culmination of what begins in Bethlehem on that Christmas morning. Uh, Christmas is a beginning, but not just for the baby Jesus who's born in a new human life there, 
by the beginning of new life for the whole of humanity. Uh, Paul writes about this as he continues in verse 20. Uh, read along with me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Uh, Take a moment to zero in with me on that phrase at the end of verse 20. Uh, Christ has been raised from the dead as the firstfruits of those who have died. Uh, The first fruits is an agricultural metaphor. It's about the first fruit on a particular plant or a crop uh, that begins the start of the season to grow. Um, Now, we all know, of course, that the most important crop in the world that you can grow is grapes to make wine with. Um, So let's talk a little bit about uh, making wine and growing grapes for a little bit so we can try and unpack this a little bit. Uh, The first fruits of the season are fruit that show you both the quality and the quantity of what's to come. Uh, Farmers of any kind, including people who grow grapes for wine, farmers of any kind will look to the first thing that pops up from their crop each year with great expectation, with great hope, perhaps even with a bit of anxiety, to go, what is this crop going to be like this year? What kind of effects have the prevailing conditions had? What is it that's going to happen with what I make this year? Uh, Here's an uh, Instagram post from my favourite winery in the Barossa Valley. Uh, They do this every year at the start of the season. They get really, really excited when the fruit starts to show on the vine. Uh, This is a post here where they're talking about how the the grapes are developing a nice colour and a nice shape and a nice texture. All things that excite them about the possibilities for the wine that they'll make with these grapes in due course. Uh, The whole point is that if the first fruit you see is good quality fruit, you can be assured that the fruit to come is going to be of that same quality. Secondly as well, the first fruit that grows of whatever crop in a a given year is just a, a proof that the harvest is coming, that you'll get more of the same in due course. So it is, Paul says here, with Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection is a fact And because of that, we can be sure that just as Jesus has been raised, so too those who belong to him will be raised. If you're connected to Jesus, then the same physical restoration from death that he experienced will be yours as well. He's the first fruits of many such fruit to follow, of the same quality in great quantity. Paul teases this out further by comparing uh, two different human beings, comparing a human being through whom death came into the world and a human being through whom life, resurrection from the dead, has come into the world, comparing Adam and Christ. Verse 22, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And what Jesus is doing here really, uh, sorry, what Paul's doing here is describing two classes of people. There are two kinds of people in the world, he says, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Uh, We've been uh, talking a lot at the uh, Attic, our Friday night youth group, about this idea of being in Christ this term. We've been reading together through another one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Ephesians, where he talks heaps about being in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, what it looks like to live in Christ. Uh, Here's the metaphor that we've been using to unpack what that means. Uh, My uh, mum and dad have just moved uh, kind of a quarter of the way around the world. Uh, They've lived uh, in Sydney for their entire lives and they've just moved to Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Uh, They're living there in the capital city. They've moved to work at a church over there. Uh, They were living in Sydney. Now they're living in Phnom Penh. 
and that makes all kinds of differences. Uh, they uh, have to learn to speak a different language, they dress differently. One of the biggest differences is the change in weather, the change in the climate. I was Skyping mum and dad just the other day and uh, I said to mum, ah, oh, it's been so hot and humid here, and she said, you have no idea. Living right near the equator now, it's been 34 degrees. My weather app tells me it feels like 39 degrees. Walking down the street two minutes to grab an iced coffee just results in loads of sweat. Uh, there's a different climate because they've moved from living in one place to living in another. And that's something like what Paul is getting at here. Moving from being in Adam to being in Christ. My parents now, when they want to know uh, what, what is uh, kind of in store for them in the next few days, they don't look to the weather forecast in Sydney anymore, they look to the forecast in Phnom Penh. And what Paul is saying here is that the forecast for people who are in Adam is death. But the forecast for people who are in Christ is resurrection from the dead. There's a different climate for those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are people who, are, who have Christ as their representative and leader, who find their identity and their destiny in him. Who no longer find in Adam a leader who will lead them to death and make their destiny death. Instead, their destiny now is the same resurrection life that Jesus has experienced. Uh, the reason that Paul uh, makes such a point of this, the reason that he uses Adam as his comparison here, is that Adam, as the first human being in the story that we read in Genesis 1-3, to was meant to be someone who worked with God to make God's world everything that God intended for it. To be a place of life and fullness, of beauty and joy and goodness. Adam was to be God's uh, partner in that, his steward over all that God had made. But, of course, we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve instead chose to do their own thing. They chose to live apart from God's ways. They walked away from him. They sinned, and they brought sin and death into the world. But the resurrection life that Jesus has experienced undoes all of that. Jesus came in human flesh to remake humanity from within. Uh, And the thing to note here is that instead of starting again... God refused to give up on what he'd made. God wants to get his creation and and the human beings he's made to help him make the world a beautiful place. He wants to get all of that project back on track. And so what he does is to send a new human, a second Adam, Jesus, who lives the kind of life that Adam was supposed to live, the kind of life that you and I were supposed to live. The point Paul's making here is that resurrection is a moment of new creation, that Jesus in his renewed and resurrected human life can now be and do for humankind and for the whole of creation what neither humankind nor creation could do for themselves. And as the first fruits, he is the promise that those who belong to him will also participate in that risen life, will also be a part of God getting his project for his world back on track. It matters that Jesus was raised in his body, really, from the grave, in flesh, because it means that God has not failed, that God has not given up on the world that he's made. Uh, There's a TV show that uh, some of you might have watched. Does anyone recognize this? Oh, good, there are some nods. I wondered, because you guys are a little bit younger and hipper at the 6 p.m. congregation, if you might not have seen this. Um, This is uh, Kevin MacLeod, uh, who uh, hosts a program on the BBC called Grand Designs. Uh, It's an architecture show, basically, kind of a renovation show. It's become a big deal uh, in my household. My wife, uh, Alison, and our friend, Laura, who we live with, are obsessed with it. 
Um, they think that the houses are beautiful, they love the philosophy of the architecture that goes into it. Mostly, I think they have a little bit of a crush on Kevin. Uh, this show follows people as they take uh, a block of land or a house and make something new with it. Uh, that they take uh, some idea they have in their head for a beautiful place to live in and they turn it into reality. There are two different ways that people do that as you watch a show like Grand Designs. Either they go, here's a beautiful piece of land with a rubbish uh, house on it um, that I couldn't care less about, I'm going to bulldoze it and start fresh. Or they go, there's a dilapidated, falling down, kind of gross house here, but there's something kind of cool about it. There's something a little bit unique about it. There's a particular pattern in the floor, in the foyer, that I think would be worth preserving. Or there's a window that's just beautiful and looks out over this park and that would be worth actually keeping that and working with it. Or the structure of the house is reasonably sound, but the, the walls in between are falling down. And so those projects become projects of restoration, and not of starting from scratch, but of working from within what, what already exists there to actually make it new again. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead is important because it shows us that God is in that second category. That he hasn't given up on what he's made. The creation that he said at the very beginning was good is still good even though it's broken and marred by sin. And so in Jesus, God gets about the business of remaking everything that has gone wrong with his world. Uh, this means God has not given up on the world that he made. It means that God's not given up on you because, of course, all the mess that uh, has brought our world to a, a crashing halt in all kinds of ways, all those uh, bits of plaster that are falling off the walls all around the place, uh, that's not only because of the big things out there that happen to us, all kinds of forces in the world that work against God and his purposes. That actually involves us as well. We've all lived the life that Adam lived. Not the life he should have lived, but the life he did in reality. The kind of life that walks away from God and his ways. We've become uh, agents of the same kind of sin as Adam, agents of disorder in God's world. Nevertheless, God has not given up on his creation and he hasn't given up on you either. Uh, here's how one uh, theologian puts it, I think, in a really helpful way. Uh, this is from Rowan Williams. He writes, The resurrection is in part about the sheer toughness and persistence of God's love. When we have done our worst, God remains God and remains committed to being our God. See, there's nothing that has gone wrong with our world, whether it's large-scale uh, war and crisis, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's the fight that you have with your brother or sister or cousin on Christmas Day, whether it's the stuff that you want to get sorted out in your own heart and your own life, but that you can't get it together. None of that, even at our worst, will stop God from doing what he wants to do with his creation. And that's what the resurrection shows us. Whatever mess we find ourselves in, whatever our part in that mess, God has made a new beginning for us in Jesus' resurrection. But there's more to say about the importance of the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead than just that. And we see this in the next few verses where Paul begins to, begins to unpack what it means for Jesus to reign in God's kingdom, for him to truly be the king and the Lord. And he connects that to, the, to Jesus' resurrection from the dead as well. Have a look at the next few verses with me from verse 24. Paul writes, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Jesus' resurrection, Paul says, is the final verdict on and the final condemnation of every ruler and authority and power that stands opposed to God and his good purposes for his world. Uh, Those powers include all kinds of different things. They include what we might call spiritual powers, things that we don't think about that much in our culture and context, but that nonetheless exist, all the kinds of spiritual forces in the world that we don't see, but we see their impacts in all kinds of ways in our culture, in our lives. But it includes lots of other things as well. It includes political authorities. It includes governments and elected officials, kings, queens, presidents, dictators. It includes the economic forces that shape our world and the uh, the, uh, powerful institutions and wealthy interests who shape them. It includes the, the social and cultural movements that we find in our world that dictate and influence the moral shape of our communities all the way down to the interpersonal powers and interactions that we have, all those ways in which we misuse our power over one another. Those breakdowns we experience in our families and networks of relationships, those things are part of these powers in the world as well. As well, of course, in the end, the power of death itself and the power of of sickness in our lives. All these powers, the scriptures tell us, are defeated by Jesus' defeat of death in his resurrection. When Paul says that death is the last enemy, he means that it's the ultimate enemy. Death is the culmination of everything that stands against God's good creation. God created the place of life and joy and flourishing, and death brings all of that to a halt. It's worth asking, why is it that death is so closely linked to those powers and authorities here? Why is it that Jesus' defeat of death is also a defeat of all those other kinds of powers and forces in our world and our life? Uh, Really what it comes down to is that uh, in the end, uh, the power of death, the threat of death, the threat of harm and violence, uh, is what powerful people have over people who are less powerful. You see, whenever the rule or authority of a government or a powerful leader is threatened, they'll respond by attacking the bodies of those who oppose them, either by putting them to death or by locking them up or by threatening to do so. Uh, There's an organisation who we uh, love and support here at St John's named uh, International Justice Mission. They work all over the world uh, seeking to uh, do justice for the poor and the vulnerable in all kinds of ways through uh, legal systems, through working with law enforcement. They do all kinds of amazing work. And their testimony, which they've now done research into and have quite uh, solidly proven actually, the one factor in injustice in the world that is always present is the threat of violence that when there are no checks on the threats of violence that the the powerful might make against the poor, that's when injustice happens. The powerful know how to use the fear of death to control those they rule over. They deal in death. But if death has been defeated, and if those who belong to Christ are promised a resurrection like his, then that threat begins to lose its power. On the large scale, in the realm of uh, politics and the the rule of nations, there are many uh, death-dealing powers and regimes around our world. Uh, One of them is on display quite clearly now in the nation of China. You might know that the government of China is cracking down in all kinds of ways on Christians at the moment. Uh, There's a church uh, called Early Rain Covenant Church where early in December, about 100 members of their church, including their leadership, were rounded up by the police uh, and escorted away, arrested, taken to prison. Uh, They had been told many times to stop meeting publicly, uh, not to speak and proclaim that Jesus is the one who is the true Lord of the world, who's made a way to be a part of a new world through his death and resurrection. But they refused to stop meeting. They refused to stop 
doing so, to stop worshipping Jesus and to stop doing it publicly. Among those uh, taken away were the church's senior pastor, Wang Yi, and his wife. Uh, He anticipated that one day this might happen. There's been growing opposition to Christianity in China for a long time. Uh, And Pastor Wang Yi thought, you know what, I'm going to write down uh, a letter to be published if I get arrested that explains why it is that I've been happy to stand up against the government in this way. That letter was published in recent weeks after he had been arrested. Uh, Here's a little bit of what he... Oh, here's him. There he is. Uh, Here's a little bit of what it is that he has to say in that letter. He writes, Jesus is the Christ... Son of the eternal living God, he died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in gentleness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Why? Why is he able to do this? Why does he want to do this? What's the power that he has for actually standing up to opposition in this way? Well, he tells us, he continues, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one in this world can make me change my life. And no one in this world can raise me from the dead. See what he's doing there? That the power of death has begun to lose its power. Because he knows one can raise him from the dead. Because he knows the God of our uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Because he knows one who has promised that just as Jesus was raised, so he will be raised. The Jesus who has smashed the power of death has already broken the power of the rulers and authorities of the world. Threats to his body, to imprison it, to injure it, to kill it, they no longer have the power that they once did. And in his resistance we see the power of the resurrection life of Jesus, even in the present, even though we still wait for the redemption of our bodies. Uh, That's an example for us of uh, where those big, global, death-dealing powers come into contact with our personal life. For most of us, the ways in which those powers affect us are not going to be quite so dramatic. However, there are experiences of those rulers and authorities and powers that affect us uh, in much more personal ways. Experiences uh, for us and for those known to us of domestic and family violence, of neglect, of betrayal by close friends, experiences of anxiety and depression and other mental health issues, experiences of habits that we just can't break, experiences of abuse, of relational breakdowns, of bullying in schools or in your workplace. There are all kinds of ways in which these same things, it's all, it's all on a scale, it's all on a spectrum, it's all the power of death and sin in the world, that these things press in on us as well. I wonder, as Christmas approaches this year, what powers you feel pressing in on you? What of those uh, rulers and authorities you see in your life? In the last uh, year or so, I've um, developed a particular love uh, for one line in the Nicene Creed. 
not something you hear someone say every day. Uh, the creeds, you know, we, uh, we say most weeks the Apostles' Creed together. When we have the Lord's Supper together, we usually say the Nicene Creed, which is a little bit longer. They're statements that we say in solidarity with Christians like Wang Yi and Christians throughout the world and across the ages, that this is what we believe, this is what we stand for as God's people. Uh, there's one line in the section of the Nicene Creed uh, where uh, we are confessing together our faith in God the Son, in Jesus. The line is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. Uh, It's that last bit actually that really gets me that sometimes actually when we say it now I will admit that I start to get a little bit teary the more I think about it. His kingdom will have no end. You see the thing is that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave has pulled the rug out from under all of those powers that would threaten death and violence and sadness and sorrow and injury and sickness in our lives and Jesus now as the resurrected Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead and his reign will be eternal that his kingdom shall have no end means that God will not let evil death and sin have the last word on his creation that God will not let evil death and sin have the last word on humanity that he will not let evil death and sin have the last word on you It means that his forecast for you, if you're connected to Jesus, is the resurrection life that Jesus already experiences. A life untouched by death, a life untouched by mourning, by crying or pain. Jesus' resurrection has dealt death a fatal blow and final victory is sure. Death has been defeated and we wait for Jesus' return to finish the job. His kingdom will have no end. And yet we don't experience this right now in our present, do we? We still have this experience of Christmas where things should be all joyful and yet we feel like something is missing. Experiences of sadness, of hurt, of disappointment. Because our Lord Jesus has not yet returned to judge the living and the dead. All of this will happen, Paul writes in verse 23, at his coming. We have Jesus as the first fruits. The harvest is yet to come. And so in the meantime, we wait. Uh, Christmas, the beginning of the story of the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection, the new life of that baby in the manger who will grow up to live our life, to die our death, to be raised so that we might have his life. It's a story that's still playing out in human history. So Christians for a long time have used this time in the lead up to Christmas, the season we call Advent, to, to practice waiting for Jesus. Not to wait for his arrival the first time, which is an event that lies for us now in the past, but to wait for his arrival again, to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Waiting for God to finish what he's already made certain uh, means uh, that we can actually find a way through all of those disappointments, those sorrows and sadnesses. Because we know that the power they have has been broken. We know that actually we can begin to live the kind of life that God had for us in the beginning. The rulers and authorities and powers that still have force in our world, politically and personally, are way beyond our control. You get sick and there's nothing you can do about it. You have people mistreat you and there's nothing you can do about it. Your country goes to war and there's nothing you can do about it. We don't have very much control at all. But none of these things are beyond God's control. He's defeated them from the inside by beginning to remake humanity in Jesus. And so we wait for him to return and finish the job. And the thing is that we live in that power of Jesus' defeat of death here and now. 
Because even though we wait for our bodies to be redeemed and remade, for all of the, the ramifications of that event to play out in our lives and in human history, the very fact that death's power has been broken gives us the beginnings of new life here and now. Uh, the Apostle James, in uh, his letter uh, in the New Testament, uh, writes this. He writes that in fulfillment of his own purpose, God gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, and we, even now as his people, the first fruits of God's creatures. We, even now, called not to run away from the darkness we see in the world, not to pretend that it doesn't hurt, not to try and control our circumstances in such a way that we think we can actually just eradicate any kind of suffering and pain from our lives. No, instead, as the first fruits of God's creatures, he calls us to live through those things, to bring the hope of the power of Jesus' resurrection to bear on those things. We have new life to live even while we wait for Jesus to return and to finish the work that's been achieved in his resurrection. You see, the, the thing about it is this. You've got to know how you get connected to Jesus in the first place. How is it you can take part of his resurrection life in this way? Uh, and the thing is that for Jesus, it's not as though uh, there was Adam who brought death and then Jesus who brought life, and that's great. One guy who died, one guy who raised, and you know, you'd rather be the second guy. No, there wasn't any shortcut for Jesus in this. The resurrection life that Jesus has won for us was won by sharing not only life in Adam's fallen world, but by sharing also in Adam's death. Jesus came among us and embraced our hurts and disappointments, the loneliness and the loss of life in this world. And he took them all the way to the cross. He died the death that comes to all who share in Adam's failure. But having died, he was in fact raised from the dead, defeating every power that stands against God and against his creation. And so as we remember Jesus, born at Christmas into a world so damaged by death and evil and sin, born a powerless child in a world beset by all kinds of powerful evils, dying a death at the hands of the rulers and authorities who couldn't stand anything that stood opposed to them and used death as their punishment, Remember that having lived and died, he was raised. And we remember as well that just as, in the song we heard back at the beginning, just as the snow will disappear and spring comes in the resurrection of Jesus, that in time the Lord will rise, that in time also we will rise, that all who belong to him will rise to share in his deathless life, to live a life of everlasting joy in his kingdom without end as he returns to rule and reign over us forever. So how will you go at waiting in this next year? How will you go as you remember on Christmas in a few days, Jesus coming among us as a little child? Will you remember that he was raised for us as well and that we too will share in his resurrection? Let's pray that that would be our power and strength as we live through all the difficulties of life in our world. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you didn't give up on your creation. That you didn't give up on each of us. But instead you became one of us in Jesus. That you entered into our human life, that you entered into the failure of Adam to live the life that we were supposed to live so that we might have the resurrection life of Jesus. 
Father, there are all kinds of powers that press in upon us, big things out there in the world, little things in our personal lives, things in our own hearts. Father, we ask that you would smash the power of those things by the resurrection life of Jesus, that you would give us such hope and joy in being connected to him that we'll wait faithfully for his return and begin to show the world what it looks like to live that resurrection life here and now. Father, be in us by your spirit, we pray, to remind us of the great power that's at work in us. Help us to see in the baby born at Christmas the one who would not only die for us but be raised for us and to look forward with joy to sharing in a resurrection like his when he comes again. Father, we long for his return. We ask that you would send him soon. We pray this for your glory and in his name. Amen.